for one another. We pray for the kingdom of God as it goes forth to the ends of the earth. Though we come in a prayer of intercession, pleading on behalf for one another. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that by your marvelous light, as we gather before you, you offer us the great opportunity to gather as your children and make requests. We pray, O Lord, for our civil government around us. We thank, O Lord, of this day, the Supreme Court that is over us, the highest court of our land, as they make many decisions. We pray, O Lord, that you would grant those who serve on this court integrity to rule and to govern well as it relates to case law and various laws and applying those laws in our society. We pray, O Lord, that the law written upon their hearts would impact, influence their decisions as judges over us. And we pray, O Lord, for Chief Justice Roberts to this end as the emblem of the Supreme Court itself. We pray, O Lord, that you'd use this court to protect the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in our land, that we, O Lord, might continue to gather in liberality and freedom to worship you as our God. We also pray, O Lord, for ministry, though. We think of Mosaic Crisis Pregnancy Center and and Mosaic Health. We pray, O Lord, that as this ministry seeks to protect the lives of the unborn, O Lord, that you would continue to use this ministry to do just that. But we pray, O Lord, that it would do more than that. That it would not merely save physical lives, but that through this ministry, people would be redirected to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, where they would hear the gospel and come to faith in Him. We pray, O Lord, that those little children whose lives may be in limbo might not merely find physical life, but eternal life in the risen Son. And that you'd use those in our own congregation that volunteer for this ministry or who give to this ministry to that very end. We also pray, O Lord, for the lost in the world, whether they be those uh, in our cities who do not know you, those who seek to take the lives of their very young children in the womb who do not know you. We pray, O Lord, that you'd soften the hearts of those who do not believe. We pray for those, O Lord, who do not believe in on the continent of Europe, a place that was a fountainhead at one point for the faith where the Protestant Reformation took place and our own tradition finds its history within, has now gone dormant, is in exile, as it relates to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would raise up missionaries and ministers to go forth back to a place of our own heritage, to call those who do not know you to yourself. Maybe even within our own congregation, O Lord, we pray that you'd raise up 1% of us at least to go to the ends of the earth, to go to Europe and to remind the European people of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation found therein. We also pray, O Lord, for growth within our own congregation, that we would be a people of grace and truth as the gospel teaches us. O Lord, Continue to instill these virtues of the Christian faith in each and every one of us here, from the youngest among us who is yet to learn to walk, to the oldest among us who delightfully waits to see your face face to face. We pray, O Lord, that we would continue to grow in grace, not only as we experience that grace in the Lord Jesus Christ as we have salvation applied to us, but that we would be gracious with one another that we would show favor towards one another, whether merited or not, and that we would be a community that grows in truth. 
that as we hear from your scriptures, as we study them, that we would be greatly conformed to them. O oh Lord, may we grow, O oh Lord, as a congregation. In that, we also pray for Joanne. We pray for your sustaining grace upon her as she's been absent from us for quite some time. We pray, O oh Lord, that her healing go, continues to go well, that you would uplift Dan as he serves his wife, as he has served her for so long with this illness. We pray, O oh Lord, that healing would be final now, that you would return among us and that you'd give her strength and energy and endurance. O oh Lord, we miss this saint. We would pray, O oh Lord, that she be healed and healed quickly. In like manner, we also pray for Virgil. As he continues in hospice, we pray, O Lord, that you'd continue to be gracious to him. We thank you, O Lord, that you have made him comfortable and that even you've given him some strength to interact as many of this congregation has visited him. I thank you, O Lord, for this congregation, that you have been gracious to us by instilling within our hearts the liberality of love for one another. As evidenced in our care for Mr. Virgil, we pray, O Lord, that you would continue to raise up from among us visitors to remind him of the gospel and to minister to him commonly. But we pray, O Lord, that in the comfort that you offer to him in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you remind him that you are his sustaining grace. O Lord, we know it is his great desire to be with you. And so we pray, O Lord, in that manner. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. May that sweet taste of this saint that he desires so deeply be granted to him and perhaps even soon. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I invite you to turn with me in your hymnals to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> Last week we saw that Jesus called his first disciples from the boat on the Sea of Galilee to ministry. And at the end of the passage, they had to abandon everything. They abandoned even the great heaps of fish that they just brought on board in order to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. This week, we get another and continued taste of that gospel that he has been preaching to the synagogues, that he would bring good news to the poor and the downcast and the ostracized. We see that in two stories today. We see that in the healing of the leprous man, but also the healing of the paralytic. I debated, even this week, whether to separate these two stories into two separate sermons, but I believe the thrust of the purpose of both stories happens at the end of the second story. And so they dovetail well together, and so we'll take them as a, a unit together today as we see Christ's miraculous healing. So Luke chapter 5, picking up in verse 12, stand with me as we hear the word of God through verse 26. <clears throat> Luke 5, verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for, you, for your cleansing, 
as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now, even more, the report of him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to a desolate place and pray. On one of these days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with them to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, Jesus said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been laying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized all of them, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. My sister is one of those people who cannot handle vomit. She wants nothing to do with vomit. Ever since she was a little girl, if there, if there, were, there was gagging in the room, she exited and exited immediately. In some ways, you're tempted to gag in her presence because you know of the illicit reaction that you will receive from such action. My sister cannot handle it. When there's vomit, she is gone. She worked at a daycare and it was just the same. When there was a kid that had a stomach illness and vomited, she said, oh no, I cannot deal with this and left. My sister viewed people that vomited as untouchable people. She could not deal with or touch or be in the presence of anyone who had a stomach bug with fear of seeing what would come out of them. Well, in this passage, we see a bunch of untouchable people. Maybe not by my sister's standards, but by the society that Jesus was in. We see a leprous man who, as he comes before the Lord Jesus Christ, no one in their minds would even bring him before because he was truly untouchable, a disease so debilitating for this man that no one wanted anything to do with him. And the same is with a paralytic, a man who had his own mat who would sit there begging day in and day out as a beggar on the streets. People passing by, not even wanting to look him in the eyes. These were truly untouchable people. We see this somewhat in our modern age. If you go to modern day India, there's a subclass of people that are viewed as the untouchable people in society. The beggars that you want nothing to do with. They deserve their lot in life and therefore you abandon them and 
reject them. But what we see in this passage today is that Jesus chooses to embrace the untouchable. Those who are rejected in society, whether they be infected with leprosy or whether they be a paralytic who is laid on his mat for quite some time. He comes to embrace those who are rejected. The ostracized, those who were perhaps even viewed as subhuman at the time. He has come to embrace them. In a spiritual sense, we are all untouchable by a holy God. We, as we present ourselves before a holy God, in His marvelous light, we sense our own ruin because we are truly untouchable. And so today, I want you to see in this passage yourself, not as perhaps the Pharisees or the scribes, not as a disciple of Jesus, but perhaps like the paralytic and the leprous man. Some of you might be leprous, others might be paralytic, but what we see is that the Lord comes to embrace all of those who are often rejected. Chances are, if I look out in this congregation, every one of you wants to belong. Well, what we have today is a passage that shows even the oddest among us belong in the community of Christ. So you may be untouchable, but Jesus comes to embrace you. We see three essential basic truths in this passage about Jesus embracing untouchable people. The first truth I want you to see is that he embraces you in faith. How does the Lord embrace an untouchable people? He embraces them in faith. We see this faith both in the paralytic and the leprous man. Look down at verse 12 with me. While he was in one of the cities, a man came full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell down to his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. We see the faith of the leprous man. Perhaps a desperate man, but the faith of him. He knows that Jesus is his solution. He knows that Jesus is his physical salvation. If Jesus would will to heal me, it's not a question of if he can, it's if he wills to do it. He has the power. He knows it. And so he comes down groveling before Jesus Christ, begging him, please cleanse me, not even to heal me, but cleanse me. Make me belong again to the community. But what is this leprosy? Some maybe think that it's Hansen's disease where you have uh, some some, uh, organisms in your skin, bacteria that causes your skin to get blotchy. Uh, But leprosy in this time was not that. It was actually that and much more. It was a category. It's like if you walk up to someone who has cancer, they'll say they have cancer. But that doesn't really tell you the type of cancer they have. This person has leprosy. We never learned the type of leprosy, but it could range all the way from being a mild rash that would go away in a few days to a skin-eating disease that rots away the flesh. There are seven known illnesses that are related to leprosy in the Old and New Testament. And I am guessing in this passage, it's not one of those temporary rashes. People might say, well, Scott, are you just making some sort of rash statement? Are you just forcing this upon me? But look at the demeanor of the man. He came down and fell on his face, begging him. He was desperate. I have rashes from time to time. You have rashes from time to time. When's the last time you groveled to your doctor begging him to heal you? You don't. This is a serious disease. This is nearly and probably close to that debilitating disease that eats flesh. 
I don't know where it is on the spectrum. But it is so extraordinary to this man that he comes begging on his face to be clean. Many referred to people with this kind of leprosy as the living dead. They are walking corpses in our society. And you wanted nothing to do with them. Not merely because of how they would look, whether they would have no nose, missing fingers, and the like. It wasn't merely that you didn't want to catch whatever they had. It was the idea that if you came in contact with them, you yourself would be made unclean. So no one wanted anything to do with these people. There is a pastor friend of mine who went to preach to a leprous colony in South America, and he said it was so debilitating seeing these saints gathered to worship as they came with missing appendages, missing facial features. It was life-altering and changing. But what was interesting to my pastor friend that went there to preach said he had never experienced more joy because these people have been made clean. Despite their current leprous state, they've been made clean and they gather together in community to worship. They were exiled from society where my friend would preach, but in the community, they belong to Christ. And he said it was one of the most intimate spiritual experiences he has had in a worship service as leprous people would come to worship. That is what this man is asking for. He's not asking for his nose to grow back or his fingers to be reattached. He's asking to be made clean that he might belong in the covenant community. See, when you had leprosy, as we just read in the book of Leviticus, you were not allowed in the camp. The priest had to come to you outside the camp. The priest had to come to you and make you right before you can ever come back to engage in society. Therefore, this man who's had this debilitating disease for this long has not, has not hearkened the doors of the church. He's not gone to the temple to make sacrifices. He's not gone to the synagogue to worship. He has been truly exiled from the people of God. And so what he desires more than anything, rather than being just made purely clean or be healed, is to be made clean. And that's what Jesus does. He stretches out his hands and touches him. He says, I will be clean. He cleanses him. And his leprosy immediately departs from him. This disfigured man is made clean before the Lord. And the grounding of that embrace is the faith that he has in Jesus Christ. He has faith. And that faith that he has, he is made clean. He asks to be ceremonially cleansed, and he is cleansed. We heard an example a few weeks ago from Naaman, and if we didn't read that passage already, where Elisha comes and tells Naaman to how he can be cleansed of his leprosy, if we didn't read that a few weeks ago, we would read it today. What does Elijah, Elisha tell him to do? He tells him to go in the Jordan, dunk yourself seven times, and then you will be clean. This pagan is made clean. But what we know here is that this leprous man is not asked to do anything. It's just merely by Jesus' touch, his words, that this man is made clean. Jesus' word and touch is integral throughout all of the gospel message. Very rarely does he have all of these various rituals that he demands of his people. He just says and touches, and people are made right. But notice his command. 
He charges them in verse 14 to tell no one and go to show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded. Though he has been made clean in the eyes of God, there was still the ceremony that he had to do. You see, Jesus was born under law and he never sought to usurp the law. Though this man has been cleansed in the sight of God, he must now be cleansed and rejoin society. This is probably the day that this leprous man has waited for. He has longed for this day where he could go out into the wilderness, get some doves, kill one of those doves, sprinkle the other dove in blood and let it fly away. He's been waiting for this day. He's dreamt of it. The day where he will set a dove covered in blood free and that he would return to society and be with God's people once more. He's dreamt of this day and he looks forward to it as he gets to meet with the priest. That priest we heard just a moment ago in Leviticus 20 would give him a full examination. He would make sure that there's no unsightly hairs that are discolored, any blotches of the skin. As you age, you'll probably have to go to the doctor and you'll go to a dermatologist and he'll begin to expect all of you. This is what that priest did. He inspected all of of this leprous man to make sure that he was truly clean. He does what Moses had commanded, given from God. He's inspected and he is checked out and he returns. It's a great testimony of faith. It's a great testimony of faith that the Lord comes and embraces his people. He embraces his people in faith. When they come... He embraces them. I want you to have empathy for this leprous man. I want you to have empathy for him. Perhaps in our own society, there are untouchables as well. Maybe not so much in our own Edwardsville area. We don't really see many of those. But I'm sure if you've gone to St. Louis at any time, as you'd exit the highway, you see someone begging. And how often... Do you try to avoid contact with eyes at all costs? You just have both hands on the wheel looking straight ahead. You try to disregard and ignore. You don't want to see them and you don't want them to see you. The untouchables of our society. Jesus encourages his church to show empathy. To empathy to the lowliest. To the disfigured man with no nose, missing fingers. To the person begging on the side of the road. I'm not saying empty all your wallets and give, but there is an innate humanity that we as Christians are ought to recognize even with the lowly among us, even with the lowly in this world. But perhaps maybe you feel you yourself are untouchable. Why would the Lord love me? He knows me better than my wife knows me. Why would he choose to touch me? It's a reminder that as rotten as you might be, that the Lord is gracious to us. We're reminded in the hymn, Come ye sinner, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and poor. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity and with power. The Lord embraces an untouchable people in faith. Share that faith with others. You may be untouchable, but Jesus comes to embrace you. First thing that we saw is that he embraces you in faith. The next thing that we see is that he embraces you with favor. Favor. We're going to have three F's here. The second is favor. We see this in verse 17. On one of those days he was teaching. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village and Judea and Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. 
You see, Jesus' healing ministry, we didn't touch on it too much in the previous few verses, but despite that man not telling anyone, everyone seems to already be picking up that Jesus is a healer, that he has the power to heal. And so the Pharisees, the teachers of the law from the synagogues throughout all of the region, even from Jerusalem himself, we get a delegation from Rome coming to Jesus in order to hear him. They are skeptical of him. They want to see what he says and they want to catch him up. This is an opportunity for them to prove that he is a false teacher. So they gather. It's an examination, like a pastor might be examined before he's ordained for the ministry. He is examined by these men as they hear Jesus teach. These Pharisees were lay leaders, most likely, in many churches. The scribes of the Pharisees would be like the pastors of the synagogues. The Pharisees themselves would be like our ruling elders. I'm not calling our ruling elders Pharisees, so don't look around in that. But the idea of their status in society, the Pharisees had day jobs. The scribes of the Pharisees, your pastor doesn't have a job, it seems. He's your pastor, he just works on Sunday for one hour. But he's educated, he's an educated man. These Pharisees were lay leaders and the teachers, their pastors were alongside them, sitting there, learning from him. And what happens in the midst of that learning, another event comes to play. This is one of my first passages I've ever preached on, is this healing of the paralytic. What happens, verse 18, And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. The, the leprous man had to come by himself. <laughs> no one wanted to touch or deal with him. The only way that man was going to come to Jesus is if he got up and walked to Jesus himself. This man, this paralytic man, has friends. And what every good friend would do, what do they do? They hear that Jesus is in town and he heals and we have a friend in need. So what does they do? They, they, they pick him up on his mat, make a makeshift gurney, and bring him to Jesus in the house. Where Jesus was teaching was an ordinary house with one to three bedrooms at most. And there were stairs that would go up to where the roof would be. The roofs were often open and they were often accessible where you can climb up. All of this was hardened clay at that time. And so these people, seeing that there's no way in to bring their friend who's in need to Jesus, go up the stairs and they begin to claw through the ceiling. In the Gospel of Mark, you get a more vivid picture of them tearing through the clay. But that's what they're doing with their fingers. Tearing through the clay, you can see their desperation for their friend. They tear through the clay. Imagine the, the experience Jesus must have had as he's teaching these Pharisees and scribes and debris starts falling from ahead. What is going on? I know there's a crowd among us, but this whole house is going to fall down. And the surprise that they would see as fingers would be peeking through as they finally tear up enough clay. Think of how large that hole would have to be for their friend who's a paralytic, to be gurneyed or hoisted down. It, it would have been quite the experience. Jesus, when he sees their faith, does not heal the man. These, these men have traveled who knows how long, miles carrying their man by gurney to see Jesus, and Jesus' first words aren't healing. Probably unexpected. We saw the leprous man who's cleansed and healed. This is what Jesus says. Man, your sins are forgiven you. That's what Jesus says to him. Your sins are forgiven you. The 
Pharisees and the scribes got what they want. But Jesus shows favor to this man, even before he hears him. One commentator says the point of the narrative is that the problem of sin, though not as apparent to the eye as paralysis, is the fundamental problem of humanity and that Jesus has come to counteract. Compared to the healing, the forgiveness of sins is by far the greater gift that Jesus brought in his ministry and brought to this man. This is the gift that he brings to his people. The great declaration that Jesus himself can say to you, man, woman, child, your sins are forgiven you. That is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That when he comes, and you come clawing through the roof of a house to see the Savior, that he says to you, your sins are forgiven. You may be untouchable because of your sin. Your, your past sins might haunt you. I know sometimes my own sins haunt me. I wish I had greater success over some sins in my life. I know the long road of sanctification where it seems some days I am moving mere millimeters in success. The haunting nature of sin, what we see here is that Jesus would say, your sins are forgiven. Jesus overlooks our past when he comes to forgive us of our sins. You can worry about them. Your sins can keep you up at night. You can have all sorts of issues. You can think your health is not as good as it needs and you're struggling with that. And you're thinking, well, Jesus, why don't you just fix my health, make that better? Well, what we learn here is that the greater gift that Jesus offers is not mere physical healing, but the gift of your sins being forgiven. That is the first and foremost important part of this one story. Is that as that paralytic is lowered, he offers him salvation. And so we see that he offers him favor. But the last thing I want you to see, and we're going to develop this a little more now, is that he embraces you through forgiveness. We've already touched on it a bit as we've talked about the life of the paralytic and Jesus saying your sins are forgiven. But I want to now look at the response of the Pharisees as it relates to that forgiveness. Look at verse 21 with me. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? You see, these, these leaders of the, the, the church, the synagogues at the time, they came waiting to find fault with Jesus. They had found no fault. They have been waiting. They have sat in their pew patiently waiting for an opportunity to get the pastor. They've waited patiently, and now that opportunity has presented itself. Jesus says, man, your sins are forgiven you. It's the perfect trap. You see, these Pharisees generally have the right theology. They just misunderstand who Jesus is. They understand that only God alone can forgive sin. That's a good theology to have. Many of you have that theology. All of you should. Only God can forgive sins. They have the right theology. But what we learn in this passage, just because you have the right theology doesn't mean you apply it correctly. And it can lead to grave circumstance as it does for these Pharisees. They understand the law rightly. Pharisees were trained in the law. They were fundamentalists of their era. They believed the word of God. They longed for the Messiah. They believed in things unseen. They had all of their theology perfectly developed. 
I don't want to make any more connections to us and the Pharisees, but they are the Presbyterians of the old order. They knew everything they needed to know, but here we see they misapply it. And that misapplication is grave. They said, not my Messiah, not my king, not my president. This is not the one we've waited for because he forgives sins. And only God can do that. Sin is any offense against a holy and righteous God. And so since that is the case, only God can forgive sins. And so when Jesus says this, he knows what is implicit by that statement. That he himself is claiming to be God. His divine nature on full display as he says, your sins are forgiven you. And then Jesus performs the lesser miracle. Verse 23, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? Verse 24, but you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. You see, when you read this passage, as you've read it in the past, you're focused on the lesser miracle. Because it's so natural. It's so natural because it's so different in how Jesus does his work here. When he says to the paralytic man healed and everyone sees that person rise and walk and take his mat and go home to see his family that perhaps he has not seen in quite some time, that's drawing to the eye. And after all, Jesus' words are just words, right? Right? Your sins are forgiven you. Anyone can say that, it seems. I could say that. But what is meant by those words is of great gravity when Jesus says them. Because Jesus, when he says these words, it's in light of the crucifixion that would happen in just a few years. When Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you, what he means to say is paralytic man, man who deserves the damnation in hell for your sins. I will die for you. It is a great miracle that Jesus gives and offers here in offering salvation. And it is costly to Jesus for him to say these words. For Jesus to say these words reckons the future that would come where he would hang on a tree for this man. It was the harder miracle for Jesus because it was in this miracle where he himself would die. He's offering life, forgiveness, and salvation to everyone who's come in contact with him. And now for him to say this statement is of great cost to him. He will die for this, this statement. He will die by the hands of those who believe that he can't make this statement. But he will die because of this statement. He is the one that comes to offer forgiveness. And God knows the people he shows that forgiveness too, to the untouchables. Walker Percy wrote this once, and I think it's applicable here for all of us. He said, we love those who know the worst of us and don't turn their faces away. You think in your own family and homes, I sometimes wonder, well, how could my wife love me? She knows every little detail about me, the great and the not so great. She sees me every day at my best and often at my worst. How could she love me? How much greater 
is it that God knows you better than your spouse and children? That actually, that God knows you better than you know yourself. And yet, he still chooses to say those words to you. Man, your sins are forgiven you. He knows your heart better than you know your heart. John Calvin, in, his, in the opening of the Institute, says, a knowledge of self must originate in a knowledge of God. In order to know yourself, to have a true sense, a true understanding of yourself, you must have a sense of the divine. Calvin would say, a sensus divinitatis. For all those classically educated in this room, a sense of the divine. God knows you much better than, he knows yourself, than you know yourself, and he chooses to forgive you. But not only to forgive you, to embrace you, to call you his own. He embraces you through forgiveness. He forgives you your transgressions, all of your sins, all of what makes you untouchable, whether it be in your family, in the society or world, the Lord overlooks that, forgives you your sins, not without penalty, as the Son himself would die for you. How much more then should you be a forgiving spirit in this world? of God knowing your deepest, darkest secrets, the things you not even utter aloud, not even to your wife, and yet he says, your sins are forgiven you. We have a forgiving God, and thus we should be a forgiving people. Reminds me of the parable that Jesus uses when a king forgives a massive debt for someone who's in his kingdom and lets him go free. And then that servant goes and rings someone out for but a couple pennies. And it comes back before the king, and the king says, you foolish servant, I've forgiven you so much and you forgive so little. May we as Christians not be like that. But may we forgive much because we have been embraced and forgiven much. You may be untouchable, but Jesus comes to embrace you. He comes to embrace each and every one of you as you come in faith, as you come with his favor through his forgiveness. I call you then to exercise these ethics that the Lord employs upon these lowly people in the world. Do not be afraid to look the lowly in the eye and remind them that you too are lowly and that as they need a savior, so you do Remember the words of Christ as he comes, not only to heal a leprous man of skin-rotting disease, not only the paralytic upon a mat, but he comes to heal you through forgiveness. Let us close now in prayer. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you'd come not only in the world to heal, but that you'd come to forgive. We thank you that that forgiveness is not hollow and that you yourself put your own life on the line that we might have life in you. We thank you for the blood of Christ that is sprinkled upon us as we confess our sins this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.